invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. While you're making your way there, if you are here this morning, you either have served or are currently serving in the in some way, shape, or form in the United States military, would you stand so we can thank you and recognize you and honor you? Stand right now, right now. Yeah. You may be seated. You get a chance to speak to some of those men and women afterwards. Thank them for their service. For the first time in my life, I get to stand among them. Um, and I can tell you it is uh, truly uh, one of the great privileges of my life to be able to put on that uniform and to, to stand among such a noble crowd of folks as those you have seen just stand. Uh, I invite you, if you would, to turn to John chapter 6, which I trust you've already done. We, uh, our task this morning is to look at uh, verses 1 through 15. Uh, let me just give you a bit of context here. Chapter 6 of, of this gospel uh, is, 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 is a lengthy chapter, and it covers a lot of territory, but it all centers around this miracle that takes place at the beginning. Uh, if you remember chapter 5, which we spent a few weeks studying, this, uh, this, this lengthy chapter that deals with a lot of discourse and a lot of conflict and a lot of other things, but it all started around what? Do you remember what chapter 5 started with? There was a miracle. Do you remember what the miracle was? There's a healing of this, this uh, invalid man by the pool of, of Be- pools of Bethesda. And Jesus used that miracle to launch a conversation, to launch a conflict in, in many cases. And, and the rest of the chapter goes on to explain. So he sets out the miracle. He tells us what happens after the miracle. And then he interacts with us on the responses of the people following the miracle. When we get to chapter 6, it's almost the same exact pattern. We're introduced to a miracle that takes place at the beginning. Uh, we then get the reaction after the miracle. And then Jesus goes on to use this miracle kind of as, an, as a picture illustration uh, to a very, very important conversation about himself. This miracle is not in and of itself just about a miracle. In fact, the miracle really is only an illustration of the greater truth of the chapter. And that greater truth of the chapter is that Jesus is going to declare himself the bread of life. The one to whom hungry people can come and eat and find eternal satisfaction for their soul. He is, it's another way John is presenting to us Jesus Christ as more than a man, as more than a teacher, as more than a prophet. He is God in flesh. That's what all this is about. That's what everything in this gospel is about. And so we can't lose sight of that. And the miracle that we look at this morning sets the stage for Jesus to declare himself God in another sort of a way. And we're going to get in the midst of that, this startling revelation of the glory of Jesus. And right on the tail of that, we're going to be, we're going to be struck once again uh, by, the, by just pure rank unbelief all around. And the contrast is going to be remarkable. Now, we won't get all that this morning. Uh, we'll just catch the miracle this morning. And in a couple of weeks, we'll come back to the explanation and the response and all of those things. Um, that take place after that. So, um, so chapter 6 begins by this miracle uh, that deals with bread and fish and food and people eating. And it concludes at the end by Jesus explaining himself as the bread of life that people must come to to eat and find satisfaction, ultimate, complete satisfaction for their soul. Now, to set the stage a little bit, um, apart from the resurrection, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. 
Um, that's pretty remarkable in and of itself that all of the gospel writers would include this event tells us that it's likely a very, very significant thing on the landscape. Every one of them, regardless of what they remembered, regardless of what they thought about and experienced in their time with Jesus, they all thought this event important enough to write it down and to preserve it for us, uh, well, generations later to be able to look at. Um, and of course, John's, John's, we've seen this throughout, John's purpose is not uh, to, to kind of lay out for us chronology. He sets up his gospel thematically, um, unlike some of the other gospel writers. And so, um, once again, we were introduced at the beginning of this chapter with the, the words, after this. You know, and when we say, after what? It's, it's not specific, it's just kind of a general, sometime after this. So, sometime after whatever happened in chapter 5, these events take place. It's not right on the heels of it, probably a lengthy gap in between the end of 5 and the beginning of 6. A lot of things happened in between what we call in the white space in your Bible there. You have to go to Mark, Matthew, and Luke to see what's going on in between there. John does not record these things for us. But this event is absolutely astounding because Jesus in one event and in one conversation that follows, one lengthy conversation that follows, he, he accomplishes a lot. He's going to teach his disciples an incredibly important lesson that they must absolutely learn, a lesson that every disciple of Jesus must learn. He's going to clearly define what his ministry is about. He's going at the same time look at a crowd and he's going to weed out all of the false superficial followers and get down to just the ones who are the genuine believers and he's going to at the same time set a course for the cross all that's going to take place right here in this event and the conversation that ensues right afterwards so it's a really remarkable thing that we look at this morning and we'll just dig across the surface a little bit um, in our time that we have and so John tells us after this, um, beginning in verse 1, this is kind of the setting here. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Um, a couple of things that have gone on. I, I don't want to fill you in on everything that's happened in between 5 and 6, but you need to know this. You need to know there's been Jesus has been involved in some really important ministry during this time. Uh, some ministry is taking place in, the, in Galilee. This is where the, we kind of transport ourselves in chapter 6 to the area called Galilee, outside of the Sea of Galilee. And, and what's happened in the meantime is John the Baptist, remember we've talked about him a couple of times now, well John is no more, his head's been chopped off, he's dead man at this point, he's, he is gone, he is no longer around, Jesus has been made aware of this already earlier in the day. Uh, Mark and Luke tell us that the disciples, uh, just prior to this event, have, had just returned from a mission trip. We have a couple who just returned from a mission trip over there. Anthony and Jordan just got back from Uganda. Welcome back, by the way. Can't wait to hear about uh, all that God did out there in Uganda. But uh, Jesus and his disciples uh, are, are regrouping. What had happened was Jesus had been training them for quite some time, and he sent them out on a little mini mission trip, so to speak. He sent them out in small groups, and he, it was essentially his, his kind of training training mission for them. He sends them out and says, all right, guys, you've been watching me. You've been listening to me. Now you guys go launch out and give it a shot for yourselves for a little while. And so they did. They went out on their own and did ministry for a while. And then they came back and reported to Jesus everything that had happened to him on that ministry trip. And it was a remarkable trip. God did some incredible things through these guys. And you know, they're just excited to get back and tell Jesus about and just download everything that went, went on. And you know, Jesus is interested to hear about what went on. So just prior to this event, these guys have come back and Jesus is regrouping with them, and he wants to get away with them uh, to report what's going on. And also, they're, they're all exhausted and to, to, to do a bit of, of uh, R&R, if you will. The problem is, the crowds are high. And at this point, Jesus has done a lot, and he's attracting attention, and people are coming to him. And it's very difficult to get away, as we'll see this morning. 
And so all of this takes place around Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. So to speak, I got a picture map of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you, see, um, you see where Bethsaida is up at the very top of the map there. Um, that's where Philip, one of the characters in our story today, is from. If you kind of come around the coast over near Capernaum, uh, near the Mount of Beatitudes, somewhere in that vicinity there is where, uh, likely where this miracle that happens today took place. Um, there's a place, if you to go to the Israel today, there's a place called uh, uh, Tabgah. And it's there that there's a, a Byzantine church that marks um, what is kind of the traditional spot for where this took place. We don't know for sure if that's exactly where it is, but at least historically folks have revered that area as the place where it took place. There, there have been um, various churches on that spot all the way back to the 4th, 5th century. I've got a picture of the church, I think, um, that's standing there today. You can get a little feel if you go there today. That's what you'll see in this area. The inside of the church is really a beautiful place to visit. Pretty cool, isn't it, huh? What's remarkable about this particular church, if you get to visit there, is on the floor, they preserved a mosaic, a tile mosaic. Look interesting, huh? Uh, Back to the 5th century, they date this uh, particular mosaic. Now, the rock under there, you see the big rock up at the top? I don't know that it has any significance, but but it's likely that folks have have preserved that as though it were one of the places where Jesus stood when this miracle took place. Now, there's no way of possibly knowing that's the case, and likely it probably isn't the case. But anyhow, it's preserved there for that matter. But on the floor, this mosaic going back to the 5th century indicates to us, at least in this area, folks way back then believed that this is where this stuff took place. What do you see in the mosaic? Yeah, fish and some bread in a basket. And so it commemorates the miracle that John records in chapter 6. So it's a really pretty cool place to to visit if you ever get a chance to go to Israel. uh, You'll probably go there. So it's in that area around the Sea of Galilee. And in John chapter 6, you get a lot of, you know, they're in a boat and they go across and then they do this and then they get in a boat and they go back to this other place. And all of that's across the Sea of Galilee. If you're not familiar with the Sea of Galilee, it's a... um, The Sea of Galilee is more like a lake rather than more like a sea. Did I put a picture of that in there? Okay, so you can kind of see to the other side. That's just one shot of the edge of it. But it's not a massive, massive um, sea by any shot of the imagination. It's about 13 miles uh, long and about 33 miles, you know, to to, to do the loop. You know, somebody like uh, Chad Earwood would probably run that thing, you know, around the the loop. Wouldn't you 33 miles? Could you do that? Maybe. Maybe he stopped and took a swim in the middle. Um, but the Sea of Galilee, is it, a lot of things happen right around this sea. And so, um, we, I, I, at least in my mind until I saw this, I tended to imagine this being this really big thing, you know, like the Mediterranean Sea, but it's not. It's a small kind of a lake, uh, that, 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 more like a, a large lake, what you and I would envision is that, where a lot of these things take place. And it's right along the edge of this that this event happens and it unfolds before us. And so... Um, it's in, in this area that we get it. Chapter uh, 6, verse 2, we get the beginning of the story as John gives it to us. And he introduces to us a crowd that's going to be important in this story. Listen, verse 2 through 5. John reports to us, A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So lifting up his eyes then, he and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, he says something to Philip. Everywhere Jesus went, 
He draws a crowd. Everywhere he went, I mean, nobody spoke like he spoke. Nobody taught with the kind of authority with which he taught. Nobody did the kinds of things that he did. I mean, who, who makes a, 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 an invalid stand up and carry his mat by a pool? I mean, nobody does that. Who, who does the things that he did? Who makes blind people see? Who, who causes deaf people to hear? Who can, by a spoken word, instantly cause a demon to run for his dear life? Only he could do this. And everywhere he went, he called attention to himself. Not intentionally to call attention to himself, but just the things he did got people's attention. And the crowds followed him because they wanted to see more. And John tells us why the crowds typically followed him. Because they saw the signs he was doing. It was the miracles. It was the signs. It was the things that he was doing that drew attention, that people followed him for. They saw the signs. They were enamored with his miracles and Jesus is trying here to get away from the crowd. He's trying to get away with his disciples, to have some solitude, to rest. You know what it's like to have a busy week? Anybody have a busy week this week? You know what it's like You know when, when life is just pressing in on you and demands are all around and you've been running 100 miles an hour and you're just thinking in your mind, boy, I'd love to just get away somewhere and sit down for a few minutes. Any moms out there today? Is that you? I'd like to have some peace and quiet, just sit down, have an adult conversation, rest for a moment. Um, this is Jesus and the disciples. They're, they're needing some time away. And that's what they're after. And that's what they're headed towards. And so Jesus takes them up on the mountain. This word for mountain is kind of a general mountainy area. It doesn't mean a specific mountain. But they were just trying to get away from the crowds by themselves is the issue here. And John tells us something interesting. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Why would John include this? Now, he's not a guy who gives us a bunch of details for no reason. We've seen that already. So why does John tell us that the Passover is near? Any thoughts on that? Come on up here and tell us. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. I think there's a couple of reasons why John gives us this. Number one, it might help us explain the crowds, okay? Where this all takes place in chapter 6 is near a, a, a very important road. And that was the road that all the pilgrims would be traveling on to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So the crowds would have been unusually large at this season. Lots of people traveling right by where all this took place, okay? So larger than normal crowds, the Passover explains to us why. And it also might help us explain the, the crowd's reaction at the end of this miracle. Because after this miracle, um, the crowd is swelled in, in this massive enthusiasm and they want to, by force, make Jesus their king. That's their initial response to the miracle. And John tells us about the Passover because that explains to us kind of this this nationalistic fervor uh, that's going on. If you think of the Passover, it, it, it celebrates or commemorates what took place through Moses and the Exodus back in the Old Testament. But as far as a holiday goes, it was filled with all sorts of nationalistic pride. Um, think of, in America, the 4th of July on super steroids, if that makes sense, okay? Um, everybody's feeling great about Israel, about their nation, and they're celebrating it, and they're celebrating what a great nation they have and what God has done in the past, and they're looking forward with great anxiety and anticipation for the Messiah to come and, and once again rise to leadership and bring their nation back to its former glory. And so all this nationalistic fervor is surrounding uh, the Passover celebration. So when this guy comes along, and is doing miracles like this and he's providing food and, and healing people, it doesn't surprise us that they're thinking, maybe this is the guy. He's going to bring Israel back to its former glory. Let's make him the king. That helps us understand that, that one little statement John gives us. So I think that's why he tells us that. And so Jesus is trying to get away and he looks up and what does he see but the crowd? The crowd is caught up with him. They've tried to get away. But to no avail, the crowd is caught up with him. And you, they, they had come by boat and gotten to where they are. 
The crowd did not. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 33. Listen to this. Now, now many saw them going, saw Jesus and the disciples going across. And you know what they did? They ran there. They hoofed it. I mean, they ran around the sea to get to where Jesus and his disciples were going. I mean, so these people are pretty desperate to get to him, right? They're pretty desperate to not let him get out away. They want to go find him. And so they run. They run around the, the sea to get there. I mean, think about it. These folks, Jesus has been teaching. He's been healing all of the sick. These people had no medical care. I mean, we're talking centuries before anything that resembles accurate diagnosis of disease or accurate prescriptions for cure are going to come onto humanity's scene. And, and people are sick. And if you're sick or if you have some really serious illness, what hope do you have? What's the answer? You have none. You have no hope. There is no, there is no, you can't drive up to a hospital emergency room, go in and say, hey, fix me, do a surgery, give me a medication, I'll go to the pharmacy. You, none of that's possible. So people are sick and they're helpless and they're desperate and some guy comes along and he's healing people and making them instantly well. You, if you're sick, you're going to run after him too. Or if somebody in your family is sick and invalid in that hopeless state, you're going to try and get to this man. And that's what's going on here. Jesus has been doing these things and so the people are still running after him because they're hopeless and they need help. But sadly, we're going to see this crowd as a fickle, fickle crowd. It is a fickle, fickle crowd. They want everything that Jesus can bring to them physically. They want the physical healing. They want the miraculous things that he does and like he's going to do in this chapter. But there is no sense in which they're interested in repenting of their sin and bowing before him as Lord and Savior of their lives. And that's the saddest part of this whole story. They're part of the greatest miracle, perhaps, apart from the resurrection that Jesus does. They see it, they witness it, they're a part of it, and yet they walk away rejecting him. That's the crowd that's coming after him. Hard for us to imagine, but it's exactly what does happen. It's a fickle crowd. They're entrenched in their unbelief. All they want is a full stomach and a healed body, and they won't repent and embrace Jesus. And Jesus knows this, but this is what even makes more remarkable what he does. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore and he saw the great crowd, listen to what Jesus does. What does he do? Say it with me. He had compassion on them because they were like like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus is exhausted. The disciples are exhausted. He's tried to get away to have some time alone with the guys. This crowd has dogged him relentlessly. He cannot get away from them. He needs to rest, and the, the crowd is back with all of its pressing demands. He knows their hearts. He knows that ultimately what they're not interested in, and he knows exactly what they are interested in. And instead of sending them away, what does he do? He has compassion on them. And he cares for them, and he ministers to them. He doesn't run them off. He spends the whole day teaching them and healing their diseases, the other gospel writers tell us. He knew most of these people were following him only for personal gain, yet he felt compassion on them, and he ministered to them anyways. And if there's anything in this story that exposes to me the large gap between Jesus and me, it's that one statement right there. I'm truly. Because when I'm in that situation, when I'm tired and I'm wanting to get away, and people are just coming with more demands, you know what my instinct is and what I want to do? Leave me alone. Go away. Find someone else particularly if I know that they're not interested in genuine help. But not Jesus. Jesus is ever-loving, ever-compassionate, even upon those who don't respond likewise. And so he stops. And he heals them. And he teaches them. 
And he cares for them anyway. And that is instructive to me. It's instructive to me. A person who can be quite impatient and quite grouchy when he's tired. So, Jesus is not. So the crowd presses in and they meet, they meet him there. And, and then Jesus in the midst of this sees him coming. And he looks over to Philip, one of the disciples. And get this. This is where the story really gets interesting. Jesus says to Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people might eat? Think about that for a minute. He said this to test him, John tells us, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Put yourself in Philip's shoes, right? You're sitting there. You know, you're just in the midst of this. You're tired. You're tired of the crowd. Can't understand why Jesus is still taking time with him. You look out, and there's all this crowd. Jesus is teaching them. He's healing them. He's caring for them. He's ministering to them. You know, the sun's starting to go down a bit. And um, you know everybody's getting hungry. And Jesus looks at you, and he says, Hey, buddy, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? Now, Philip is from Bethsaida, which is really close by. So it may be that that's why Jesus pointed Philip out, you know. Philip, you know the lay of the land here. This is your home area. You know, where where can we go around here to get some bread for all these people? (laughs) Imagine that. Can you imagine his eyes? They must have lit up when Jesus asked him that question. You're asking me that? You can't underestimate the importance of bread, by the way, in this culture. You know, you and I, if you want some bread, what do you do? You whip out the ingredients, you get flour everywhere you bake your own homemade fresh bread every day right yeah you do of course you do i believe that no i don't you drive to walmart or bilo or Publix, and you go on a bread aisle and as far as you can see there's loaves of bread every kind of bread you can imagine there's wheat bread there's honey wheat bread there's white bread there's bread that doesn't have as many calories as the other bread then there's a bread with extra calories and extra every kind of bread you can imagine square bread bread with no crust Hard bread, crunchy bread, soft bread. Okay, this is not um, I'm getting off task here. Um, it's not Forrest Gump here. Okay, so you get the picture. If you want bread, it's easy for you to get. If we wanted to feed this crowd right now, we could run up to the store, get a lot of bread, and there would be plenty of bread there left for everybody else. Not in the first century. Not in Jesus' day. It wasn't that easy. Bread was, was the staple of life. Bread was everything to people. It was everything. And it wasn't easy to come by. You had to work really hard to get bread. You had to work really hard, really, really hard to get bread. And to make sure you had enough bread for each day and for each week. And it was not a a situation where you had stockpiles. And it wasn't a situation where there were stockpiles where you could just go and grab some when you needed it. It was a very big deal. If you didn't have bread, you died. So it was a big deal. So Jesus looks and he says, where are we going to get bread? Where, Where can we go around here to get bread? Now, Jesus knows. He knows. The answer to the question is, there is nowhere where you could get bread for these people. But he asked the question anyway. He asked the question anyway. So why? Why does he ask the question, Philip? It's not because he doesn't know what to do. He does know exactly what to do, what he's going to do. But John tells us he wants to do what? Test Philip. And the other disciples, by the way. He wants to test them. Now, get this. They've just returned from this successful ministry trip. They've done all these remarkable things in Jesus' name. They've had a really, if you want to just put it in terms of ministry, it's been remarkably successful ministry. Okay? Before too long, Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to die. 
and, and they're going to be thrust into, into a, real, a real situation in their lives. They're going to be confused for a bit. And after the resurrection, he's going to launch them out to do ministry apart from him, at least apart from his physical presence after his ascension. They're going to be on their own to do ministry. And there's an important lesson they absolutely have to learn if they're going to ever be able to do that successfully. And that's a lesson that every single person who ever attempts to do anything for Jesus has to learn. And that's this. That the only way to do any kind of successful ministry for Jesus, whether it's be witnessing to your neighbor or being a career pastor, it's if you operate in the strength and power of the Lord Jesus Christ and rely not one inch, not one iota on your own strength and your own natural resources. That's the ministry tip that you've got to know. And these guys needed to know that. And Jesus is going to ask this question to these disciples in order to expose and teach them this particular lesson. There's the potential that they could get puffed up from successful ministry, become very prideful in what they've just accomplished, and begin to think that they're really somebody. I mean, they were really somebody. We cast out demons. I mean, we preached and people responded by the droves. God did miracles through us. Man, we are we're somebody. There's a, there's a real fertile ground for pride. And Jesus needs to remind them and teach them in a very vivid way, you have no power in and of yourself. In and of yourself, you are totally and completely inadequate to do what I've called, to do anything I've called you to. But the flip side of that is, in my strength and in my power, there's nothing that you can't do. That's the message, and they need to learn it, and we need to learn it. And so Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to go find bread? And he asked them, not in order to get an answer, he asked them in order to show his bankruptcy. He wants to expose Philip and the disciples to his sufficiency and to their bankruptcy. To his complete ability to do anything and to their complete inability to do anything. That's what's going on here. You know what? Until we are forced into a situation where we see in vivid detail our own bankruptcy to do anything for the Lord, we largely won't rely on him very much. It's very easy to just fall back on our own gifts and our own strengths and to do those things as we would do anything else saying it's for Jesus, but actually operating in the flesh. So Philip and the disciples enter into Jesus' classroom outside in the fresh air this day. And by asking a simple question, Jesus exposes their inability. Listen to how Philip Philip answers the question. He actually doesn't answer the question. What did Jesus ask him? He asks him, where? Where can we go get food? What does Philip answer? He doesn't answer where. He answers how much, right? Jesus didn't ask how much. He asked where. Philip doesn't care about where because he knows there isn't a where to go. He answers, we don't have enough. We don't have enough money. 200 denarius is about a day's work for a common laborer. Even if we had 200 of those, and the indication is that they didn't, even if we had that much, and even if there was a Walmart where we could go and spend it, we still wouldn't have enough bread for even every person in this crowd to have one little tiny bite. He's saying to Jesus, Jesus, it's impossible. It's impossible. What do you mean, where do we go? There's nowhere to go. And we don't have any money. There's no supply, and we have no means. That's the answer. His answer is, it is impossible. Can you imagine his desperation? Kind of looking around. Jesus has asked him to do something that he knows he absolutely cannot do. And he's in a panic. And that's where Jesus wants him. Because Jesus wants to teach him something he's going to say later in John 15, verse 5. He's going to say, I'm the vine, and you are the what? The branches. If a man remains where? In me, and I in him, he'll do what? He'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, what? 
You can't do anything. You can't do anything. This is the lesson he's teaching him. He's teaching him that. And it's a very vivid way of doing it. And it's really remarkable that Philip responds this way because he could have responded another way. Think about it. Philip and these disciples, they have seen Jesus do some marvelous things. You would think by now he would get a question like that and he would say, no problem, Jesus. Make him dinner. Right? He made the guy get up. I mean, the guy couldn't walk for 30-something years. You made him stand up and carry his mat. No problem. You got it. That's not what he says, though. The guy's in a sheer panic. He's trying to figure out how we're... He's looking at his hands. He's looking all around. Where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to get the bread? He's looking at all the human means. And the ultimate supply of everything is standing right there asking him the question. And he still doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. Here's God standing right next to him. He can do anything. There's no challenge too great for him. And Philip still doesn't see it. And there's a principle there that's helpful for us to think about. Listen to this. Just put it in a sentence. When faced with pressing problems, we often focus on our lack instead of what? His sufficiency. It's true of your life, isn't it? It's true of mine. Something comes down the pipe like that that I didn't expect. Some problem, some challenge, some difficulty enters into my life uninvited. And I'm looking around trying to figure out how I'm going to sort it out. And my first thoughts are to look at my own hands. They look like Philip. Look around. Where am I going to get money? Where am I going to get bread? How am I going to sort this out? How am I going to work the details? And how am I going to fix this problem? And how am I going to figure it out? And it's all about how am I going to do this? And usually I'm quite struck with my own lack. And that causes things like fear and anxiety and panic. When all the while, here's Jesus, the all-sufficient God who stands aside me every day. He's promised never to leave me and never to forsake me. For whom no challenge is too big. For every challenge, he is completely and utterly more than sufficient. And yet, I, like Philip, often am just obsessed with my own lack. Trying to navigate things in my own strength. Instead of looking to him who's the ultimate insufficiency. We make the same mistake Philip does. Nothing's impossible with God. Yet yet we habitually, habitually think in terms of what we have to offer. You know, I don't know about you, but like Philip, I have a hard time trusting God sometimes. Do you? Especially when problems come that are that seem unsolvable to me. I can remember a season in my life, uh, pastoral ministry wise, uh, this has been years ago, uh, when ministry was absolutely miserable, just absolutely miserable. I dreaded waking up in the morning and going to work every day. I dreaded Sundays, <laughs> really dreaded Sundays. Um, because there was conflict all around. In church life at the sea, this, this kind of extended season was just miserable. There were conflicts everywhere. My weeks were spent um, chasing down problems and people and having conversations that were not pleasant, that were not fun. They were conflict-oriented. And in many cases, people who were very unhappy with me and very gracious to explain that to me in great detail. And and I found myself, uh, for a lengthy period of time, just running from one problem. I felt like a fireman running to every little fire trying to squirt water on it, you know? And every time you squirt fire water on this fire and you put it out, guess what? Poof, there's another one over there. You race over there and and there's one over there. And I was really running myself into the ground, honestly, just chasing conflict and fires. And I was, I found myself angry. I found myself discouraged. I found myself depressed, um, filled with anxiety. 
Uh, maybe you've had seasons like that in your life. Just, just a miserable person, to be honest with you. And then to top it all off, you come on Sunday and you have to look those people in the eye and preach. Uh, with half of them staring at their shoes or others staring at you just to make a point. Um, those are the fun days. Um, and I tell you these things not to, to, for you to feel sorry for me. Please don't. Please don't. Please don't. I tell you to make a point. I can remember a very, very important turning point in my life in ministry during that season. It was so critical uh, for, for how God was developing me as a, as a pastor and as a, as a person. I can remember one day sitting in my office, and at that office I had a window right behind my desk. And I remember being so discouraged and so frustrated and so angry, just thinking, God, I want, I, I, you know, i got to get out of here. And I remember spinning around and looking out the window and, and speaking kind of out loud to God. I think, I don't know why I thought he was out the window, but I did, apparently. And, um, I, you know, I, I remember saying out loud in that office, nobody else was there that day, thankfully. Um, I remember saying, God, this ship is sinking. I was talking about the church. The ship is sinking. And I'm bailing water as fast as I can bail. And I'm getting nowhere. I really think it's going down. I really think it's going down. I said that out loud. And I remember, I guess, I was expecting some sort of pity um, because that's what I really wanted at the moment. Now, before you mistake this, I've never heard any audible voice from the Lord. Um, If I did, it would scare me half to death, I'm sure. Um, But I I don't know how to describe this, this event other than to just say subjectively, I got this impression that the Lord's answer was, so what? Well, maybe this is just me imagining it, but I don't think so. And I remember responding to that once again out loud. If you'd have seen this from the outside, you'd have thought I was a lunatic. So what? What do you mean, so what? The ship is going down. Did you hear what I said? You know, church is going to flop. It's going to fail. It's going to go under. And, and you know, and I'm rattling off the list of what's going to happen next, you know. I'm going to be homeless because I'm not going to have a job and I'm not going to be able to pay my bills and I'm going to not have a home and I'm not going to be able to eat and nobody would ever hire a pastor who's flunked the church out before. And, you know, I'm going through this whole list of, you know, poor, sad, pitiful me things to the Lord. And the only indication I got back from the Lord was, so what? So what? I remember getting angrier as this invisible, imaginary conversation is taking place. And it was in the mix of this, this event that the Lord really taught me something really important. He, he exposed something in my heart that was dreadfully wrong, very dreadfully wrong. And that was exactly the thing that was dreadfully wrong in Philip's heart on this day. He exposed to me that I had been operating in the flesh and not depending on him. That I had been operating out of my own sufficiency and not out of his. And you see, I really believe that God was driving me during that season of my life to recognize my insufficiency. And I'm really stubborn, so he had to drive me a long ways. And I remember in that moment, him reminding me, yes, so what? The church fails. I'm still your Lord. I still will never leave you and forsake you. I still promise to care for your every single need. All of the promises that I made to you are still there. They're still there. What are you upset about? What are you angry about? Why are you so distressed? And it was God opening up my heart to say, you know what? I have not been trusting in God. I have not been operating out of his sufficiency. I've been trying to manage life myself. And you know where that will get you? It will get you to the end of your rope. That's where it will get you. And that's where it had Philip. And that's where it had these disciples at the end of their rope. They can't possibly see how they could ever do what Jesus is asking them to do. So Andrew enters into the conversation. 
He enters into the conversation. Listen to this. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to them, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. (laughs) Okay, so this is even getting better, isn't it? This is even getting better. Jesus, we searched the people, and here's what we found. One little guy in his lunchbox. Here he is. This is almost comical, right? This is almost comical. Borderline absurd. This one little kid's got enough food for him to eat, and that's it. That's it. And everything the way that John phrases this emphasizes inadequacy. Just You don't see this in the language in English, but the word translated boy is a word, it's a double diminutive, it means little boy. There's a little boy, and he's got barley loaves. Barley was what poor people made bread out of, not wheat. The normal, even an average wage person had wheat bread. This kid had barley. So he's a little boy, he's a little lad, and he's got poor man's bread, and he's got little fish. So the whole thing is trying to indicate to us, this is just absurd. It's really, really absurd and inadequate. These aren't even big fish like you would go catch with your rod and reel. These are like little pickled sardine kind of things, right? So it's not much. I mean, it really, really is not much. And Andrew brings the guy forward. Now, if Andrew had stopped after his first statement, Jesus, there's a boy here who's got five barley loaves and two fish. We would think Andrew was the hero of the story, right? We would think, all right, Philip doesn't get it, but Andrew gets it. He's got this little kid, he's brought him, and he knows Jesus is going to take this and he can do something with it. But then Andrew dashes our hopes when he says, but what are they for so many? (laughs) It's as though Andrew's saying, this is all we got. And Jesus, what are you going to do with that? It's nothing compared to this crowd. It's useless. He didn't see it either. But Jesus understands and he's making his point, isn't he? He's making it. Listen, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. See, also the fish, as so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So these guys, where are we going to get the bread? Well, I don't know where we're going to get it. There's nowhere. It's impossible, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him, and the only other thing that John tells us, he says, is have the people sit down. Now, why does he tell them sit down? Because that's what you would do if you're going to eat a meal. Sat down to eat. They don't run around their houses eating meals like we do. They just sat down. Sat down. They'd lean back and eat. That's recline. Jesus is saying to the disciples, have them sit down. Have them get ready to eat. Have them get ready to eat is what he's telling them. Go around the people. Have them all sit down and get ready for a meal. Can you, if you, if they were shocked to hear, where can we go buy bread? You can imagine the shock when he says, get the people ready to eat. You want us to do what? Go out there among those people, get them ready to eat. Eat what, Jesus? I know Jesus had to be smiling, right? I wasn't there, but I just see it in my mind. He had to be smiling, didn't he? He knows what he's going to do. And they're in sheer panic mode. We're going to look like fools telling these people to sit down and eat when we don't have any food. But they do. They have them sit down in groups of 50s and 100s, Mark tells us. 5,000 men plus women and children. Some commentators say it could have been up to anywhere up to 15, 20,000 people gathered that day. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. A lot of mouths to feed, right? So they do. They sit down and get ready for the meal. Pull up to the table. we got no food, but pull on up. And Jesus does something that's remarkable. He takes the loaves and the fish and he gives thanks for them. He, he says, a, he, he blesses God for them. It's like he's saying a blessing. Oh, great God, 
We thank you for this marvelous provision of food you've given us today. Now, have you ever heard somebody praying and you're kind of looking around going, what is that guy doing? I know the disciples were doing that. What is he doing? Just a few little rolls and a couple of pickled fish. Blesses God for the meal. And he starts to give it out to the disciples. And it's apparently right then that the miracle begun. John, doesn't it strike you that John doesn't tell us details about the miracle itself? Like, I want to know, when did the stuff turn? You know, when did it happen? He doesn't tell us. He just says he blesses it, and he started giving it to his disciples. So the best I can sense is that as he starts giving it to them, I mean, there's only, there's only a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish, and there's 12 of them, so enough to give them food to pass out. It had to start multiplying right then, didn't it? Is my math right here? So he just starts giving it to the disciples. And as he passes it out, he gives it out, and guess what? It hasn't diminished any. And he gives some more, and it hasn't diminished any. Until they all have some to pass out. And they go out and they start passing it out among the people who are sitting seated ready to eat. And they start giving it out. And they walk through the crowds and they, here's your fish and here's your bread and whoop, there's more. Well, here, you guys have some, whoop, there's more. Can you imagine the exhilaration it must have been for those guys to see that and to do it and to be the guys doing it? To be walking around and seeing the marvelous, miraculous provision that God was doing right in your very hands? And that's what they're doing. And they went through that crowd of tens of thousands of people feeding everybody, watching God multiply that food, and everybody eats until they're absolutely filled. Absolutely filled. They're all full. I mean, it's like they've gone to Golden Corral and pulled up to the buffet here, people, and they have eaten until they are slapped full. There's stuff left over hanging around on the ground. In a land where there is no Golden Corral, this was unheard of. There was nowhere in this culture where you could go and eat a buffet. There was nowhere you went where you could just eat until you were full and have leftovers. It was unheard of. And yet this day they ate until they were filled. Until they couldn't eat another thing. And there were leftovers. Enough for the twelve. Twelve baskets full. Get this. There was more leftover than they had to start with. By far. I don't know how that math works out. But it did in this day. You know, Jesus is teaching them something else. He's teaching them this. We're to never gauge the size of a challenge in terms of our own capability. Did you get that? They learned that hard way that day, didn't they? You don't, you don't gauge a challenge by the measure of your own capability. Not if you're a believer. Not if you know Jesus Christ. Because he's capable of anything, isn't he? He never calls us to be the one to provide. See, that's his job. He just calls us to commit whatever we have to him and allow him to then take it and do what he will with it. You see that? It's not a matter of what you can provide. It's not a matter of what your capability is. It's a matter of taking whatever it is that you have, whatever you've been gifted with, and just offering it to him and and, and committing it to him and allowing him to then take that and bless it how he will and to multiply it how he will and to expand it how he will and to use it how he will. Chuck Swindoll says, here's the message. He says, look, Jesus is saying this. You take care of the addition and I'll be in charge of the multiplication and the mission I've invited you to join will be accomplished. It's a great way of saying it, isn't it? It's true. That is what he was saying to them. Even the tiniest, simplest little offering with the blessing and power of Jesus can meet the greatest need. We saw that that day, right? You don't have to have much. You just have to offer what you have to Jesus. 
It's not about your capability. It's about His ability and His sufficiency. You know, there's a flip side to that. The flip side of that is the greatest human offering without the blessing and power of Christ will be utterly insufficient to even meet the smallest need. You see that? The smallest little thing with the power and blessing of Christ can meet the greatest need. The biggest offering without the blessing and power of Christ does nothing. It does nothing. It does absolutely nothing. Charles Spurgeon said this, Truly he who writes this comment has often felt as if he had neither loaf nor fish, and yet for some 40 years and more, he has been a full-handed waiter at the king's great banquet. It's great, isn't it? It's a man who looks at himself and understands his own inadequacy, and yet looks at Jesus and understands his full sufficiency. We've got to get this principle in our minds, people. We have to get it. If we're going to ever do anything for Christ, we have to get it. This message. You say, God's calling me to do something and I, I'm not able to do it. I'm, I'm inadequate. You know what? You're right. You are inadequate. Completely and wholly and utterly inadequate. But it's not about your inadequacy. It's about you taking whatever He's given you and committing it to Him and allowing Him to be His sufficiency in you and through you. You know, we've been working on raising up uh, elders, new elders in our congregation. We've talked about this a little bit. And haven't released a whole lot of information about that process, but we've talked to a few men about this. And you know, to a man, the ones that, that I've spoken with in the conversation, somewhere in the conversation, every single one of them has said in their own way, you know what, I feel completely inadequate to this kind of a calling. And you know what I say every time in my heart? Praise God. I'm so glad you said that. Because you are. And so am I. And so is every one of us who attempts to do anything for Jesus Christ. We are wholly and completely inadequate. We have nothing to really bring to the table that by itself can do anything for Christ. But if we will take what we do have, whatever gifts, whatever skills, whatever resources, whatever talents, whatever time, we say, Jesus, here's what I've got. It's not much. It's not much. And it won't accomplish anything by itself. But if you'll bless it, and if you'll... If you'll and if you'll infuse it with your power, it'll be great. And you can do something with it. And you can receive the glory when it's all done. That's what this story was all about. The disciples had to learn that lesson. And so do we. So do we. Well, the story ends in verses 14 and 15. People saw the sign he'd done. They said, this is the prophet who's come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew to the mountain again by himself. It's really sad. It's a really sad ending. The folks want to make him king. They, they still have this image of Messiah who's going to come, throw off the Romans, bring the nation back to its former glory. He's going to be a conqueror. And Jesus has not come to be that kind of a king. He hasn't come primarily this time to feed people's bellies and to heal all their diseases. And that's all these people wanted. That's all they wanted. They wanted someone who would make them well and give them food. And that's why they were following. And here, let me just finish with this thought. As this chapter unfolds, you're going to see Jesus do exactly what he does every time a big crowd gathers around him like this, filled with these kinds of people. You know what he does? He starts teaching them something really hard. And something impossible to receive. Impossible to receive. And you know what it ends up doing? Causing all of the superficial followers to walk away. 
In this chapter, he does that very thing. Quickly look at verse um, 51 of chapter 6. Look, he says this. This is what he does to this crowd. He says, listen, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, uh, the, bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Get, and going down a little further, he says to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now that'll thin a crowd, Right? You want to have eternal life, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Get that. That's a winner. Now, that, that, what he says there is rich in meaning. You won't know that today. You have to come back in a couple of weeks. But I'm telling you, it is rich in meaning. Even his disciples, we see in verse 61, it says they're grumbling about this. And Jesus says to them, do you take offense at this? Are you guys too offended? He says something so intentionally provocative and offensive. That it generates the result in verse 66. And after this, many of his disciples, that's the people in the crowd, turned back and did what? They no longer walked with him. You know, this is what happens to superficial followers when Jesus no longer meets their needs. That's what happens. That's what happens. You can draw a crowd. You can draw a crowd. There are things you can do to draw a crowd. But when you begin to teach the hard things that Jesus says, you'll see the crowd thin out real quick. When you start talking about, hey, come to Jesus. He'll meet your physical needs. He'll make you healthy. He'll make you wealthy. He'll solve all your problems. He'll he'll pay your bills. He'll work out your relationship. He'll do all these great things for you. Come on to Jesus. Just add him on to your life. And Jesus will do all these wonderful things for you. Boy, you can draw a crowd if you can deliver that message with some charisma can do it but then you turn the conversation you begin to say things like yeah if you follow jesus you're going to have to deny yourself you're going to have to take up your cross and follow him you're going to have to submit to his lordship and pursue holiness in fact you're going to have to endure persecution you might even it might even cost you your life you're going to have to hate your mother and father you have to forsake your possessions you have to mourn over your sin you're going to endure hardship and persecution and suffering. And you know what will happen to that crowd real quick? They will walk with you no longer. They'll go away. They'll go away. John Piper says this, Jesus is opening a window in this miracle to his glory. He's opening a window on his glory, not that we might be get excited about how useful he might be in getting what we already wanted but that we might see that he himself is better than anything we ever wanted. The point is that the Son of God has come into the world not to give you bread. He's come into the world to be your bread. See, that's what he's trying to communicate in this whole thing. I'm the bread of life. If you will eat of me, you'll never hunger. The bread I give, he said, is my flesh. It's all about pointing to the cross. I've come not just to feed your bellies, but I've come to die in your place. I've come to die to take your sin. You think hunger is a problem. You've got a worse problem. You've got a soul that is headed for eternal hell. And you are just as inadequate as you are to feed all these people. You're you're far more inadequate to deal with your sin. So I've come to give my life to provide for that need. And I'm better than anything you could ever want. Come to me. Come to me.
And you know that message always has a, du- a, dual, a dual effect. It runs people off who are not serious. And it draws people like a magnet who recognize their sin and their need for a Savior. And they run to Jesus. And they find in Him complete and utter satisfaction for every single need of their life. Even the most important need. Their eternal soul. And if you are here this morning, He makes that call to you. Come to me. Come to me. Forsake your sin. Repent. Trust your life to me. And I will care for you more than you could ever imagine. I've died for you. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will be your Lord and Savior and care for you every moment of your life from this day forward. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, why in the world would you leave here not knowing Him? Don't be part of the crowd that just walks away and says they walked with Him no more. I pray that that wouldn't be you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess our own inadequacy this morning. Whether we're singers or preachers, Sunday school teachers, prayer group leaders, nursery workers, faithful Christians who are trying to witness to our neighbors who are lost. Regardless of what it is you've called us to, remind us this morning of our utter and complete inadequacy. Remind us that we have nothing really to bring to the table to accomplish anything spiritual. And at the same time, Lord, remind us of your complete and utter sufficiency. Lord, I suspect that there are probably those who are here this morning who you have called to do things on your behalf. And because of fear, because of anxieties, they have a thousand reasons why they can't do it. They've been looking at their own resources and their own inadequacies and making excuses. It's why they can't serve you in the way that you've called them. I pray this morning that you would help them to see that it's not about their inadequacy, that it's about your sufficiency. That whatever it is you've called them to, Lord, that this morning, this very day, in this very moment, in this very place, they would bow before you and offer up to you, like Andrew and that little boy did with that little lunch, that they would just offer up to you whatever it is that they have. Commit it to you. And commit to doing whatever it is you've called them to do whether it be launching off onto a mission endeavor somewhere, whether it be teaching somewhere where they haven't taught, whether it be serving in some place they haven't served, whether it be speaking to someone that needs Christ that they've been afraid to speak to. Whatever the call, Lord, I pray that they would offer to you whatever they have and obey you and be a part of the thrill and exhilaration of seeing you provide what they didn't have to begin with experiencing your utter sufficiency for themselves. Not just hearing about it from other people, but experiencing it themselves. That break us out of our fears. Do that by reminding us and convincing us of your utter and complete sufficiency. We pray for these things this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.